0: Thank you, Dr. O'Donnell, for the, the kind introduction. It's really a great uh, thrill and, and privilege to be back at Christendom. I haven't been here since my son Julian's graduation nine years ago, and it's, it's really good to, to see the, the campus again. Uh, Julian's time at Christendom was really one of the great experiences of his life. And it was, it was a great experience for me because it was such a great experience for him. And so I'm just so grateful to Christendom. And I'm also grateful for everyone here. I'm grateful for the invitation uh, for you to do part of your Lenten penance by listening to me. (laughs) I think it's going to be not only going to provide for an extra Easter blessing for you, but I think you're going to get straight time off of purgatory for for the next two and a half hours. (laughs) Now you know the story, of course, about the the gentleman that wanted to get a job at the zoo, that was his one dream, was to be a zookeeper. He went to the zoo and asked the zookeeper for a job. The zookeeper said, we have no jobs. There's no openings whatsoever. And the gentleman said, but this is what I've always wanted to do, was, was work at a zoo. I will, I will do anything to work at the zoo. The zookeeper says, anything? Yeah. Said, "Well." Our gorilla just died. <laughs> and uh it's one of our most popular exhibits, and uh we need to keep it open, and uh until we can get a real live permanent gorilla, we need someone to dress up as a gorilla. He says, I'll do it. He's okay. Well start right now. So they put the monkey suit on and he he went out into the gorilla exhibit and started acting like an ape. And uh and did a very credible job as uh, the the uh, audience loved it. They, they continued to uh, come in large numbers. And uh, one day he uh, climbed up in a tree that was at the edge of the uh, exhibit with a, a branch going over the fence into the lion exhibit. And so he went out there on the branch and started rattling the branch and harassing the lion, and the crowds loved it. They would line up for hours to see this wonderful interaction of two very diverse species. (laughs) And uh, you know what's going to happen next, right? So he's out there on the branch one day, and the branch breaks, and he falls into the lion's cage and the lion starts coming towards him slowly, prowling, and uh, the crowd just pressing their faces up against the the fence because they smell blood, and this is just so exciting, and uh, he doesn't know what to do, and the lion's getting closer, he's looking at the crowd, he's looking at the lion, and finally he says, help! (laughs) And the lion says, shut up or we'll both get fired. There really is, there really is no need to go on. I mean, now, uh, now, why did I tell that story? What's that got to do with anything? It's because G.K. Chesterton said that man is the only wild animal. Every other anim- animal is, is really totally predictable in its behavior, and it's quite possible to have a science of lions and gorillas and also invertebrates. But every science of man ultimately fails because no matter how well we try to predict his behavior, at some point he will either disappoint us or surprise us. He'll do something that we cannot predict because man is the one wild animal, the one animal that has that variable, called free will, uh, which is so important to trying to understand man and to appreciate man. And so when we talk tonight about the democracy of the dead, this, this idea of freedom and free will is really a capital idea that we have to keep in mind. When you hear the term democracy of the dead, you probably are tempted to think of Something along the lines of the Brooklyn cop who said, when I die, I want to be buried in Chicago where my vote will count for something. (laughs) This is great. This is pure vodka. (laughs) Because today's a feast day. But the term Democracy of the Dead comes from one of Chesterton's great passages in one of his great books. It's from Orthodoxy. It's from the chapter The Ethics of Elfland. He's really setting up the importance of fairy tales, but on his way to doing that, he talks about this principle first of democracy that he says it's the essential things that men uh, have in common are more important than the things that, that they hold separately. That the most important things we do for ourselves are really what unites us. He says, the democratic faith is this, that the most terribly important things must be left to ordinary men themselves, writing our own love letters, blowing our own noses. It's better that we do these things for ourselves than to have someone else do them for us. (laughs) But it includes also things such as um, raising our own children rather than having someone else raise them for us. And also it extends to making our own laws, governing ourselves. The political instinct is one of these uh, universal ideas. It's trusting, he says, to a consensus of common human voices rather than to some isolated or arbitrary record. And he, he, he doesn't, he says he doesn't understand why this idea of democracy should be separated from the idea of tradition, and yet people seem to separate those two, that somehow if you're in favor of people ruling themselves, you're against tradition. And he, he, he says the, the, uh, the man who quotes some German historian against the tradition of the Catholic Church is really appealing to an aristocracy He's appealing to the superiority of one expert against the awful authority of a mob. It's quite easy to see why a legend is treated more respectfully than a book of history, because the legend is generally made by the majority of the people in the village who are sane, whereas the book is generally written by the one man in the village who is insane. I think of a lot of our history professors, yeah. Those who urge against her tradition of that men in the past were ignorant are the same people who will urge that the voters in the slums are ignorant. It will not do for us. If we attach great importance to the opinion of ordinary men when we're dealing with daily matters, there's no reason why we should disregard it when we're dealing with history. Tradition is simply an extension of the franchise. Tradition means giving a vote to the most obscure of all classes, our ancestors. It's the democracy of the dead. Tradition refuses to submit to the small and arrogant oligarchy of those who merely happen to be walking about. (laughs) All Democrats object to a man being disqualified by the accident of birth, while tradition objects to their being disqualified by the accident of death. Democracy tells us not to neglect a good man's opinion, even if he is our groom. Tradition asks us not to neglect a good man's opinion, even if he is our father. I, at any rate, cannot separate the two ideas of democracy and tradition. It seems evident to me that they are the same idea. We will have the dead at our councils. The ancient Greeks voted by stones. We shall vote by tombstones. It is all quite regular and official because most tombstones, like most ballots, are marked with a cross. And that's a quintessential Chesterton passage because he somehow resolves it all with a reference to God, not only to God but to the truth of Christianity. Everything always converges at the cross. Chesterton does that in all of his writings. Whatever he's talking about, he uses it as a way of defending Christian truth. But his, his very startling point that democracy and tradition go together has the, this corollary that it's their separation of the two that has been one of the main sources of all of our political and our economic and our cultural and moral problems that we face in the world today. Now, before we accept this, this definition of d- democracy as the as, the, uh, as tradition as the democracy of the dead, we have to first buy into Chesterton's idea that democracy is a good idea, or even that tradition's a good idea. Most people think that democracy is a good thing, or at least they think that they think democracy is a good thing, but they really don't have any reason to think so because they've never experienced it. Um, Chesterton argues that democracy is actually the oldest form of government. That it precedes all others. That people ruled themselves before they were ever ruled by anyone else. And his idea about democracy, you have to understand, like all of G.K. Chesterton's ideas, is not something that can be isolated really by itself. It's connected to everything else that he writes about. Everything he writes about is part of a coherent and consistent fabric of one philosophy that is very comprehensive and very complete. It's what makes him a complete thinker. He believes in common sense that's why he believes in democracy. He believes in Christianity that's why he believes in democracy. He says the basis of Christianity as well as democracy is that everyone is sacred. Democracy is the idea of people ruling themselves. According to common sense, that is according to tradition, according to the way the greater majority of Christendom has ruled itself for centuries, before the breakup of Christendom and the rise of all the strange philosophies that are all tied to trends and not to a universal truth. And he defends the common sense of the common people as being more trustworthy, more practical, and more just than any system, especially any system that's run by what he calls the corrupt and evasive muddlers who are called practical politicians. He says a democracy is a strange sort of place where politics can be conducted even without politicians. I believe that the people can rule and that when it does rule, it does so better than any of its rulers. Give me the common, human, jolly, healthy fool and let him govern me. I would rather be governed by nine million people mostly fools than by nine people mostly monomaniacs. (laughs) It's interesting he uses the number nine, the number of our Supreme Court justices, although we're we're down to eight right now. uh, William F. Buckley had something quite similar to say when he said, I'd rather be governed by the first 400 names in the Boston phone book than by their U.S. Congress. <laughs> but, of course, Buckley was a Chesterton fan. That's where he got the idea. The essence of democracy, says Chesterton, is very simple. As Jefferson said, it's self-evident. You put 10 people on an island, and uh, the community exists of those 10 people. Their welfare is the social object. And normally their will is the social law. And if they don't have a natural claim to rule themselves, well, then each of them has a natural claim to rule the rest. To say that the cleverest or the boldest will rule is simply to beg the question. If his talents are used for the community, for distilling the water or building a ship, well, then he's the servant of the community, and the community is his sovereign. If his talents are used against the community for stealing the rum or poisoning the water, well then why should the community submit to him? And is, is it likely that they will? That's how democracy works, it's very simple. Anybody thinking about that can understand the popular basis for the idea. Chesterton says the problem is not democracy but all the things that get in the way of democracy ever happening. All the things in the modern world that thrust themselves in between us and the ability to rule ourselves that destroy democracy. And Chesterton says there's really two main enemies of democracy in the modern world. The first one is big government. He says all nations have had governments and all nations have been ashamed of them. (laughs) The problem in our modern world is that government has become ungovernable. It cannot leave off governing. Law has become lawless. That is, it cannot see where laws should stop. The chief feature of our time is the meekness of the mob and the madness of the government. He says that the great motto of social legislation is go and see what Tommy is doing and tell him he mustn't. What we call democracy these days is not democracy. It's representative government is not democracy because, as Chesterton says, the problem with representative government is that it doesn't represent anybody. It especially cannot represent when it's remote. He says, you have to keep your politicians close enough so you can kick them. (laughs) He says, it's distressing to contemplate how few politicians are hanged. And he says, we've given the government really more power than it's ever had in all of human history. And that is epitomized by putting the government in charge of education. Chesterton said, the state had less control over a man when it could send him to be burnt at the stake than it does now when it sends him to the public school. We've given the government the most power it's ever had in all of human history when we put our children in the hands of the government to be educated with a philosophy that does not represent what the parents believe and that simply cannot represent what even the majority of the people believe. It cannot even represent common sense. Chesterton says our children in our schools today are exposed to educational theories that are younger than they are. But the other enemy of democracy is big business, which is also remote and also powerful and also pervasive and intrusive. And just like government, it's an ugly necessity because commerce is an ugly necessity. But both government and commerce have become a disproportional part of our culture. Chester says, in all normal normal civilizations, the trader has existed. Trader, the one who trades—not not Judas Iscariot, traitor, Tr- trader. The trader has existed, and must exist. There has to be that role. But in all normal civilizations, the trader is the exception and not the rule. In our society, however, he's not only become the rule, but he's become the ruler. And he says this whole disproportion is responsible for so much of our utter top heaviness and so many of the causes of the disasters of the modern world. And our problem in this country is that we associate capitalism with democracy. This is how we reason, because communism and socialism is against democracy, and because communism and socialism is against capitalism, therefore capitalism must equal democracy. And this is, you know, this is logic 101, failing right there (laughs) and yet we have had this mentality for over a century that democracy and capitalism are the same thing but democracy has to do with how we govern ourselves not about how corporations pay wages or how banks charge interest capitalism was originally called individualism which is why socialism is called socialism because it was a reaction against individualism. But they they have an amazing amount of ideas in common. Karl Marx and Adam Smith have much more in common that they have not because they've all they've both reduced all human behavior to a totally materialistic explanation. They've left out free will. And they both uh, practice uh, a system that absolutely manipulates and explains away free will. Karl Marx treats history like a machine, Adam Smith treats the market like a god. The capitalists, as Chesterton, praise competition while they create monopoly and the socialists urge a strike to turn workmen into soldiers, into state officials, which is logically a strike against strikes. Our man G.K. Chesterton invokes the maxim, Vox Populi, Vox Dei. The voice of the people is the voice of God. But he says this is not a maxim that we are in any danger of overdoing. (laughs) For the modern world has profoundly lost faith in both entities. But there is one sense in which the voice of the people is really like the voice of God, and that is that most people take precious little notice of it. In a normal society, a man's interests will always be for his own home and his own family. That'll be his primary interest, his family. From there, his concern will expand to taking care of his neighbors, his community. And with them, he'll share a mutual interest in the maintenance of local rights, local liberties. And from there, the interest will widen to outer circles to the regional, the national, to foreign affairs. But the pivotal point, says Chesterton, is the home. The home is the true dominion, the true symbol of authority. And it's the symbol for the rest of the government. In other words, democracy is from the bottom up, not from the top down. It's not based on individual interests. It's not even based on community interest. It's based on the family's interest. It recognizes that the family is the basic unit of society and that if we emphasize individual rights or community rights, it will undermine the family. But we've, we've reversed the order. We've made the, the world outside the home more important than the world inside the home. We've taken all the functions of the family and we've given them to other powers. We've broken the family apart. And now we're calling other groupings families when they're not families. Because the focus is turned away from nurturing and caring for and teaching our children as our parents taught us and as their parents taught them. But the emphasis now is on pursuing pleasure, avoiding children. And when they can't be avoided, just turning them over to be processed by the state. We like the idea of democracy. We like the idea of freedom. We're always drawn to the word freedom. But democracy can only work where the population is not dependent on the state or on a huge industrial machine. The majority has to be self-employed, not wage slaves. Chester says the opposite of employment is not unemployment. The opposite of employment is independence. And that's what freedom is. It's independence and which brings with it responsibility just as self-employment brings responsibility. The true meaning of the word economy means household, taking care of one's house. And the other meaning of the word economy means thrift. In other words, self-denial, self-control is the essence of self-government. And self-government begins by thinking for ourselves, acting for ourselves, doing basic things for ourselves, like writing our own love letters and blowing our own noses but also the other things that should not be done by someone else and certainly not by a specialist because by not doing things for ourselves we lose control over our lives and we become passive and we lose our freedom and we become weak and decadent. Chesterton says men in a state of decadence employ professionals to fight for them and professionals to dance for them and professionals to rule them. In losing our freedom, we have fallen into a slave mentality. And the slave exists, he he expects to be taken care of, even while he complains about being a slave. Chesterton says, it's cheap to own a slave. It's cheaper to be a slave. And the wage slave is a slave. And one of the standard characteristics of slavery is that it breaks apart the family. Self-government is the only alternative to big government, just as freedom is the only alternative to tyranny. But self-government means self-control. It doesn't mean doing whatever we want. It means doing what we should do of our own volition rather than having it done for us or to us. Self-control is the only way to exercise freedom. It's connected to self-sufficiency, self-employment, and that's the only alternative to big business. Just as many small businesses are the alternative to monopoly. And they're only possible self-control self-government only possible in a moral society where the morals are held in common just like common sense is held in common but with the decline of self-government and self-control with the rise of a passive culture and the spreading of a slave mentality comes the loss of common sense and so our public education defies common sense. Our laws defy common sense. What we call entertainment defies common sense. But common sense is connected to tradition, to the basic, the basic truths that are shared by the generations that came before us. And the enemies of democracy are the same as the enemies of tradition. And this rejection of tradition always comes under the false notion of progress. Old is bad, new is better, and newer must be better than new. But progress is a a meaningless concept. Chester says you can't have progress unless you've defined what your goal is, and then you know whether you're moving closer towards it or not. But you can't have progress for progress's sake. He says that simply means going on towards going on. But this this term progressiveness, progressivism, this default idea that things inevitably be going to be getting better is a philosophy that's really helped ruin the modern world because it's used to make excuses for bad behavior because bad behavior is always called progressive. But the history of the world is not a story of progress. The history of the world begins with the fall and then, begins the story of salvation, of trying to recover something that we lost. In fact, Chesterton says, if he took all the poetry in the world and put it into one volume, the title of that volume would be Paradise Lost. We've lost something. We have to get it back. And so we know that Chesterton combined democracy and tradition he often combines things that the modern world would rather see separated. In fact, his whole approach to education is completely the opposite of the modern world's approach, where we've taken every subject and separated it from every other subject. Chester says, the modern world is one wild divorce court. <laughs> but his approach to education is that we, we show how everything fits together and how it's all connected so that The story of history, which is the story of salvation, is tied to literature, which is our retelling of the story. And philosophy and math are connected because they both show how ordered thinking takes place and how logic works. And science and art are connected because they both are about observing the process of creation. And they're both about understanding proportion and design and beauty. And theology is connected to everything else. It's the glue that holds it all together. But just as he combines all these things that the modern world would like to see separated, at the very same time, he separates all the things that the modern world would like to combine, to throw together to melt together. He resists the pagan attempts to pantheize religion, and the Eastern attempts to to put everything into one gooey cosmic unity. He insists that God and man are different, that man and woman are different, that East and West are different, that Christian and non-Christian are different that Catholic and non-Catholic are different. And these differences are differences that people are unwilling to admit and certainly unwilling to talk about, but differences that should be talked about, especially when it comes to our desires for the world and how it affects fundamental things like marriage and family and birth and death. What world do you want to make? That's the question that Chesterton is asking us. Do you want to restore something that's been lost? Do you want to preserve something that's good? Or do you want to persist in a, in a state of amnesia and vandalism and cremation? In other words, forgetting the past and destroying the past and not Bearing the past, but burning the past. Incidentally, Chesterton predicted that the modern insistence on hygiene would bring back the pagan habit of cremation. And cremation has returned, and it's an attack on tradition. It's burning things up and so forgetting them. It's interesting that this generation that seems to worship health and worship the physical ultimately has no respect for the body. We burn the body because we do not believe in the resurrection of the body. Chesterton says we have betrayed the dead. So, there is this battle that goes on in the modern world between the old and the new. And those who represent the modern point of view, Chesterton argues that they are actually dishonest because they don't take any of the modern ideas to their logical conclusion, because it would lead to madness. It would lead to insanity. That's the whole argument of chapter two of orthodoxy, the maniac. But neither do they take and trace any of the old traditions back to their beginning. Because if they did, it would lead to Rome. The prophet G.K. Chesterton is backed up by the prophet Jeremiah, who says, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths, where the good way is, and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. And that's really what we are looking for, isn't it? Rest for our souls. But instead of taking the ancient paths, we follow the modern fallacies, especially the fallacy of progress. We reject tradition. The next verse from Jeremiah is, but they said, we will not walk in it. And G.K. Chesterton, back in 1920, asked, if we, if we really do let go of Catholic tradition, what's gonna replace it? What is gonna be the common philosophy that is put in its place. Chester says any of the suggestions that he has considered that have been offered are neither common nor are they philosophic. Reminds me what he probably would say about the common core. It's not common and it's not the core. He says we have to create the Christian culture again in our society, not merely to save it from being destroyed, we have to create it in order to save it. Every political question, says Chesterton, is a theological question. He says, Lenin got it wrong. He got it the wrong way around. The truth is that irreligion is the opium of the people. Wherever the people do not believe in something beyond the world, they will worship the world. But above all, they will worship the strongest thing in the world. And by the very nature of modern systems, as well as by the practical working of almost any system, the state will be the strongest thing in the world. He says, if you take away the God, the government becomes the God, and it will be a jealous God. It will be opposed to any other God. And rebelling against the government, is dangerous, which is why the modern world very characteristically prefer to rebel against theology because it's safe. But Lenin was not the only one who got it the wrong way around. In fact, he was not even the only Lenin who got it the wrong way around. John Lenin got it the wrong way around. (laughs) He asked us to imagine no heaven. Imagine nothing to live or die for. And John Lennon himself drifted to Eastern religion, where everything is backward, where the suppression of all desire rather than the fulfillment of our desire really leaves us with nothing to live or die for, nothing to imagine for that matter, because it, it takes away the great image, the image of God in which we are created in which we are all made. And not only did he not, was he not able to imagine, What, what did John Lennon die for? Ironically, he died for nothing. He died because of the madness of modern literature, which has no answers. And the madness of modern celebrity, which has idols but no gods. John Lennon used his great talent for nothing couldn't buy himself love he couldn't even buy himself life told us to give peace a chance but he denied the prince of peace he didn't look for the ancient paths where you find rest for your souls but may his soul rest in peace but in contrast to John Lennon G.K. Chesterton says we cannot be vague about what we believe in and what we are willing to fight for and what we are willing to die for. And so we have to stop giving lip service to democracy. We have to return to common sense. We have to extend the franchise to include our ancestors and give them a vote. The ones who built Christendom, that's the tradition that we must honor, the the tradition of the Catholic faith, of Catholic culture, Because everything else is either a a reduction of that, or a departure from that, or an attack on that. G.K. Chesterton says the world is living off its Catholic capital. We have to defend the family, of course, the basic unit of, of civilization. Defend the faith, which is the glue that holds everything together. We have to defend these things, but we have to understand we are not fighting a defensive war. When Jesus founded his church, he promised Peter that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. When is the last time you saw a gate attack anything? (laughs) We are the church militant. We are the ones doing the attacking. We are attacking evil, the realm of Satan, and of course Satan's going to put up a fight, but the gates of hell will not prevail. It's time for us to go to battle. We are already part of a great army. But if you're looking for a particular battalion to join, well, I would invite you to join the one that I belong to. It's led by a fat man smoking a cigar. And the sound you hear is his laughter because he knows the enemy is ridiculous. And he fights with joy. And the people who oppose us, the people who persecute us, the people who make stupid laws and decadent entertainment and run immoral trades, we're not trying to crush them. We're trying to convert them. We're trying to get them to be traitors to their side and come and join our side. Because ultimately that's what they really want to do. Because there's no glory in surrendering to hell. But there's great glory in fighting against it. And so what they all need is to encounter a modern saint. Someone who is a model of faith, hope, and charity in a world full of doubt and despair and hate. G.K. Chesterton, who once pointed out that the age is often converted by the saint who contradicts it the most. Thank you for your kind attention. God bless.